The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, we're going to get started into our study this evening, and as uh, as it has been for our, the past few weeks, our text verse is from Matthew sixteen eighteen, and uh, this verse is one that makes sure that our search for the church and history is a fruitful one, because Christ promised in that verse that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And that's kind of an interesting thing because the Bible does not say that the gates of hell can never touch the church. Uh, we are engaged in a fight for the truth. We're engaged in a fight for the survival of the Lord's church. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul told us to put on the whole armor of God. And he wouldn't have told us to do that unless we were in a very serious fight. But we do know this, that even though we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness that is in high places, the Word of God says that we are able through the strength of the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God that we are able to pull down the strongholds of Satan. But let's not make any mistake about this, that we most certainly are engaged in a fight. And it's not just what we, it hasn't been just in the past and what we read in history. And those were some terrible times that our Baptist forefathers have gone through. But Satan is no less relentless in his attack now than he was then. And so he is seeking ways to destroy the Lord's church. But we're going to look back at the past and we look back and see what God has done and what God has brought us through And we know assuredly as he brought us through the past, he will take us into the future until Christ comes again. Now, as we come then to the next era of history, we're going to talk about a very long period. This is a period of a thousand years, and the intensity of Satan's attacks against the church were really dramatically increased during this time. The strengthening of Catholicism and the rise of its prominence to become a major force in the world gave us, in the, uh, looking at the past, that is, gave, gave the world a new world to look at. I mean, the advancement of Roman Catholicism uh, practically shut down the advancement of the human race. Did you know that? In this period that we're talking about, Roman Catholicism almost did its very best to shut down cultural advancement, scientific advancement of the human race through their, through their efforts to keep things under their control. But before we start that phase of history, let's back up just a little bit, just briefly mention uh, the first couple of three eras that we've talked about thus far. We started with the apostolic age, and that was, of course, the church in the time of the apostles, in the time of Christ when it was begun. And that age ended with the apostle John when he died. He was the last apostle. And just as Christ said it would in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the church would spread out into the uttermost parts of the world. And so it did. And the church left Jerusalem and went into the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire. 
Now, if you remember when we discussed that period of history, it was the great infrastructure that Rome had given the world with its roads and, and uh, so forth, and then the, the uh, common language that came through Alexander the Great. Those two things enabled the gospel to spread uh, around the known world, and by 63 AD, the gospel had gone all the way into Britain. And this was a time of transition for the church, again, moving out of Jerusalem. So it became a, a Gentile church in makeup. And uh, another thing I think is interesting about this is that the church is never again going to be Jewish in character. Uh, the Jews will never have a large part of the church because Christ will return before that ever happens. And then, as I think I mentioned last week, that the Jews will become prominent during the millennial kingdom. But the church by that time is going to be gone. Well, the next era was the anti-Nicene age. And that was when the church moved out of the first century. It went into the second. And it still had a very close connection to the apostles. And that's because... There were people in that early part of the second century who knew the apostles and had actually been subject to their teachings. Well, the last of the apostles died. As we said, John died. And then the last of all of those people that knew the apostles died. And so in the latter part of the second century is when comes the first real test of Christ's promise of perpetuity. Would the church hold out? Would it still hold on to the doctrines that were given? Or with the passing of all of these great men, would the truth begin to degrade and then would no longer be preached to people? And that's an interesting issue for us because even in our own time, uh, we see how churches can change from one generation to the next. Even from one administration to the next in a church, great changes can take place. And so a church that was once strong can become very weak under the wrong leadership. And um, a church loses its doctrinal integrity if that leadership fails. Well, among the early churches in this period, uh, the, we, we would have to wonder, is there a degradation of the faith? Was that going to happen? Well, it didn't. They contended for the faith. The Lord made sure that the promise was good and it was constant persecution of the people of God that actually unified them and kept them going strong. Well, it was during this time in the anti-Nicene age that doctrinal heresies were growing. Uh, those ones that we've talked about, ecclesiasticism, baptismal regeneration, sacerdotalism, those doctrines were becoming more entrenched, and those things injected what would later become the poison that gave us the Roman Catholic Church. Now, thirdly, was the imperial age. In 313, the Roman Empire officially recognized Christianity and relaxed persecution. And then in 314... Constantine reigned as ostensibly the first Christian emperor. And in the Council of Nicaea in 325, paganism and Christianity, or that brand of Christianity, added another partner, and that partner was the state. And so that was the beginning of church-state government, and that gave religion the power to enforce government, and government the power to enforce religion, and those two things brought together brought about thousands of years or now more than a thousand years of the worst persecution that the world has ever seen. 
Now, Baptists during that time were called Montanists and Novatians and Donatists. Uh, they believed in soul liberty and they maintained that the church should have no interference with, uh, with uh, or rather that the state should have no interference with the church, that the conscience of man is free and so the church or the state cannot enforce people, uh, force people to come into the church. And so they kept making those arguments, but the arguments fell on deaf ears until in the 5th century, the churches had lost, the true churches of Christ had lost all of their civil rights. And then in 415, the emperor threatened anyone with death that dared hold to Baptist beliefs. Now that takes us to our study tonight and into this long period of time that's known as the Middle Ages. Now this time is also known as the Dark Ages. And we'll discuss a little bit more about that designation in just a moment. But the significant date at the beginning here is 476, and that's when the Roman Empire fell. And then on the other end of the dates that I've given you, 1453 is the date of the fall of Constantinople. Now, what I want to tell you now is what was going on between those times, from the time that Rome fell up until the time that Constantinople fell. Well, the most significant thing that occurred that led us into this period is what happened in 330, and that was when the capital of Rome, or the capital of the empire, I should say, moved from Rome to Constantinople. Now, Constantine uh, was supposedly converted to Christianity, and he had this plan that he was going to unite pagans and Christians, and that plan went fairly well, but it didn't go well enough. There was a lot of opposition to it, and that caused Constantine to seek another capital for the empire. And so what he did was to choose Byzantium, that's in Turkey, along the shores of the Black Sea. Uh, that's the same city that now is called Istanbul. But he renamed Byzantium uh, uh, Constantinople. And so in effect, what happened then was the Roman Empire was split into two parts. You had the east and the west. In the west was Rome, and in the east was Constantinople. And what that did was to, uh, to weaken the overall um, power of the empire, and that made the west become more susceptible to marauding or invading armies. And so in 476, Rome fell. Constantinople was still going strong. It had a good location. It... Uh, its landscape made it much harder to defeat, and so Constantinople was safe. But when Rome fell, there was no longer this unifying governmental influence that was in the West, and that left the Roman Catholic Church to be the unifying power. Now, in the East, Constantinople flourished. The Byzantine Empire headed by Constantinople, was much, much more culturally advanced than was the West. And we think about that today, that's very hard for us to imagine. I mean, we look at that era, uh, area of the world today, area that's now controlled by Islam, and wherever you go where Islam is, it's like stepping back several centuries they're really, really very much backward. But that wasn't the way that it was uh, at this particular time because the East was much more culturally advanced than the West was. So the East flourished, and the West, that's ruled by Catholicism, became backward and stagnant. And the Roman Catholic Church was determined that it would keep out scientific and cultural advance because Rome looked at that as a threat to their power. And so what this did was to plunge the West into the Dark Ages... 
The Roman Catholic Church was gaining more and more power and more and more influence until the Catholic Church reached its zenith of power in the 11th to the 13th centuries. Well, during that same time, New Testament churches, true New Testament churches, were growing. Many people were being saved, and our people were experiencing the double persecution now from both Eastern and Western empires, and people were dying by the thousands. Well, that deepening darkness that came during that time was fueled by a system that's known as feudalism. I don't have time to go into the complications of that right now, but I'll suffice it to say this, that it was a social order in which landowners called lords agreed to protect their tenants in exchange for their homage and their servitude in war. So society was structured around this relationship of landowners to laborers, and what that did was to create a wide rift in the social order. And that was a very seriously depressing system. And Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church was right there hand in hand with that, and there really wasn't much relief for that from that until in 1215 in England there was the Magna Carta. And that actually did provide a little bit of relief to the feudal system. But this is a system that went on for 600 years with the Roman Catholic Church making it all the more miserable. Now there are four main events that put the Roman Catholic Church on track to dominance and gave, its rise, gave it its rise to power. The first thing that happened was what we talked about a moment ago, the moving of the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople. That left Rome by itself to be the Roman church, that is, by itself to be the single unifying factor in the West. Then came the fall of Rome. That's the second thing, the fall of Rome in 476. Then thirdly, there was the fragmentation of the empire and disintegration into this feudal system. And then fourthly, surprisingly enough, fourthly was the rise of scholasticism and the university system in the 12th century. Now let me explain that a little bit to you. Uh, the rise of scholasticism and the university system. Now what had happened was that the West had been so long uh, depressed by the Roman Catholic system that there was always this thirst for knowledge. People were, were wanting to learn things, and they were doing that in the East in Constantinople, but in the West that was suppressed. But this thirst for knowledge kept growing and growing until the Roman Catholic Church could not control it any longer. They couldn't keep that, that thirst at bay. They couldn't keep people from learning. And so they thought then the best thing for us to do, if we can't stop it, then let's control it. If we can't stop it, then let's bring it under our control so people will learn what we want them to learn. And so the Roman Catholic Church started the university system, and that's what trained her theologians. And of course, training theologians in the Roman Catholic Church can only make things worse. And then scholasticism, that idea, brought a philosophical approach to Christianity so that Rome didn't really have much trouble at all getting back to its Gnostic roots. Now what I'm trying to do here as we study the history of the church is not to make this a study about Roman Catholicism. But that is a very, very difficult thing to do because it seems like, or, or it is the, the case really, that everything that was going on in the Roman Catholic Church very seriously affected those who believed the truth. It affected Baptist churches. 
So almost all of the evils that you find in Catholicism affected the Baptists because every satanic doctrine they invented became one more thing that would, that would cause more torture and more death because we disagreed with them. They are the state church. Now one of the things that I mentioned last time is the so-called Christianization of Britain. The gospel had reached Britain long before the Rome, first Roman Catholic was ever heard of. But in 597, Pope Gregory I sent Augustine to Britain to convert it to Catholicism. So that's going on during this period. And then in the 7th century, there was an attempt to convert Jews to Roman Catholicism. And at the same time in the 7th century, <clears throat> Mohammed came along and Islam was born. And that led to a whole new dynamic the Muslims were, were very aggressive. They were trying to rid the world of infidels. Uh, Muslims are monotheistic, and so that means they were very strongly against paganism. And who is the most paganistic people on the planet? The Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Muslims could see through that, that thin veil that the Roman Catholics used to try to mask their idolatry, even though most of the world can't see through it, the Muslims did. And the Muslims hated that idolatry, especially when Roman Catholics were building churches in the Holy Land or right in their backyard. And so they wanted to stop Catholicism. Well, there was a great big push to Christianize the world, and there were crusades that were conducted by armed soldiers that were called the crusaders and they also had their own very persuasive method of evangelism that's conversion uh, conversion to them is either convert or die i mean that's their that's their system uh, when we were in israel we we visited a crusader castle which was a very 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 interesting place way up on a hill in northeastern israel that had a commanding view of the surrounding territory and the crusaders would build these these huge forts and these were places where they would keep their troops and they would go out and they would fight especially against the muslims and try to do the conversion of jews as well but we visited one, uh, one of those places, and it, it was amazing to look at the history of that and see how that today both Muslims and the uh, uh, Jews have very little affinity at all for Christianity. Now, we understand that somewhat among, among uh, the Jews because of Christ and all of that, but I'm not talking about that problem. I'm speaking about the way that Christians under the Roman Catholic Church, this so-called Christianity, savagely killed both Jews and Muslims in their evangelistic campaigns. Well, the Islamic Empire hit its zenith in the 8th century, and then it was all-out war with the Roman Catholics and the Catholics were trying to keep them from overrunning the Western world. And those attempts led to some very bloody conflicts between Christians and Muslims. And one of the things that, that uh, really intrigued me was when we uh, looked at the old churches that were built during the Middle Ages and the doorway of those churches. Uh, Gary probably remembers, I'm sure remembers this. But at every significant site in, in Israel... Uh, during the Middle Ages, they would build a church over that site. For instance, you go to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and there's a church and a convent there that's built at the place where they think that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, 
And as you travel around Israel, there are many other religious sites, and there'll be a church that's built there, especially in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is filled with Christian, ch Christian churches. Uh, the Mount of Olives, there's churches that dot the whole place. You've got a church there next to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a church there. It's called the Church of John the Baptist. You get into Jerusalem, you have a church for uh, the Mother of Mary, and you have a church that's built over the place that they say was the grave of Jesus. And there's actually two graves of Jesus in Jerusalem, one that's traditional and one that others say where Jesus was put into the tomb. But you can go in there and you see this church that's supposed to be built over the place where uh, Jesus died. But a really interesting one was when we went into Bethlehem to the church in the Nativity. And to get into that church, this huge church that was built in the Middle Ages, uh, the door into that church is only about this high. And so you have to stoop down to get through that door to get into the church. Now, of course, they built another entrance to that now on the other side, but during the time when the church was built, it just had this little four-foot door or so. And the reason that they did that was to keep the Muslims from riding their horses inside of the church. Because what they would do is they would ride into these Catholic churches and they would destroy all of the idols that were in there and they would tear up the insides of the churches. So you had this conflict that was going on during this time between Muslims and Christians. Muslims trying to stamp out the idolatry of Rome and then of course uh, Rome trying to kill Muslims and convert everybody with their evangelistic techniques. And both of them, quite frankly, both of them were very savage and cruel in the way that they killed people. Well, it was during this time <clears throat> that Charlemagne came to power. Uh, this was around 800 A.D. And Charlemagne started what was officially known as the Holy Roman Empire. Now, the empire, the Roman Empire was gone by that time. <clears throat> but what Charlemagne wanted to do was to pick up the pieces of the old Roman Empire and try to put that back together and make it a religious empire. And that's what he did. And so when that happened, the church actually began to rule the kings of Europe. And many of the conflicts that took place during that time was the kings trying to come out from under that rule of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, what we have then is a church that controls people, not for the good of their souls or not because they're concerned really about their salvation. Uh, salvation and things that are godly, that's a far-off consideration for them. But what they actually have now is a bloodthirst for power. This is a power issue that we have now. So the church is seeking power over the known world. And then to show you just how wicked that it became, that we're really not talking about salvation here, is that in the 10th century, the Roman Catholic Church entered into what is known as the era of pornocracy. You say, what is pornocracy? Well, take the first part, porn, and you got a pretty good idea what that is. It's the era of pornocracy, and it was during this time that the mistress of one pope became the mother of the next pope and the aunt of another pope and the grandmother of still another pope. So what we're talking about here is very, very wicked men. There was filth and there was corruption. There was murder in the church. And while all of this is going on, the pope of Rome is carrying his title of high priest, the pontiff maxim, and the vicar of Christ. 
Now, I don't know how much interest that you have in history of Roman Catholicism, but I'll throw out just a little bit of trivia for you here if you, if you are interested in this. Uh, you know that when they, uh, the Roman Catholics name a new pope, that the pope changes his name. Well, in, the, um, in 914, 914, Pope Lando was the last Roman Catholic pope to take a unique name. And since that time, all the popes have been named by, uh, have taken the names of their predecessors. This is why you have Pope Francis. There was another Pope Francis, the Pope before this, Pope, what was his name, Pope Benedict. There were 16 Benedict, he's the 16th Benedict. So they kept keeping the name, taking the names of the popes that were before them. And I suppose that's their way of preserving that, uh, that terrible history, that awful history that they have to keep, that, keep those names alive. But I just have to, to come to this point again. And this is the third time that I've addressed this in this study, is that how could the Roman Catholic Church during that time have been the true church? This was before Protestantism. We're talking about 700 years from Charlemagne before the Protestants were ever heard of. And so how could the true church have run through Catholicism? Now, Protestantism came out of this rank corruption and they can no more be the true church than the Roman Catholic Church was because how can a clean thing come out of an unclean thing? Uh, Job nailed that on the head when he said, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, not one? And so that tells us that there had to be somebody else. There, there, there has to be somebody else who's preaching the gospel. The Protestants are 700 years away from this time, so who's keeping the church alive? Who, who's preaching the truth when the Roman Catholics are, are no closer than Beelzebub to being Christians. Well, those people were like us, people like us, the Baptists, believing things that we believe. And there were plenty of these people, millions of them, in fact, during this particular period of time. But I want to go on before we talk about them, and, and we're going to do that next time, actually. But I, I want to talk to you about some more of the doctrines that, that came to being during this particular time uh, that show us in, in even more ways that Rome could never be the true church. Now, no doubt things were, were very, very bad in previous years. Now, we're going to talk about doctrinal errors, right? Uh, doctrinal errors during the period now. But it, it's no doubt that things were, were really bad in the previous years. You have the ecclesiasticism, the baptism, regeneration, the sacerdotalism, infant baptism, and all those things, those heresies that are going around. And things don't get better as time goes by. I mean, you don't start to clean things up in this system. Things keep getting worse. So more time helped them to refine their false doctrines to a place that it almost defies description. I mean, if we didn't, if we weren't so used to this today by, by looking back and seeing what's happened over these many, many years of what Roman Catholicism has done, we would be just totally shocked and just dump bum-fuzzled about how these things could ever happen. But of course, they're mostly accepted now. And so it makes you wonder, why are there people like, like uh, Billy Graham and some of the others that have no problem at all sitting down with the Pope and having a chit-chat with him and think that the gospel of Jesus Christ has anything in common with Catholicism? When I was in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome just a few years ago, I, 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 I shuddered at the creepiness of that place. I mean, that, that was like Satan's warehouse. I mean, the place where he keeps all of his ghoulish gear. That's what St. Peter's felt like to me. Well, there was a lot of bad stuff that came out of this era. It was during this time that there was the development of the Mass. 
In the ninth century, the Roman Catholics first proposed that the real body and blood of Christ were present in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Now, that idea took a, quite a while to gain acceptance. Uh, the tendency of Catholicism is to love all things that are mystical and find new ways to control people. So it took a little while for this to get going. But transubstantiation, that is the changing of the body and the blood of Jesus, uh, changing those elements into the body and blood of Jesus, uh, became official doctrine, and that was in 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council. Uh, I really don't know what Roman Catholicism thought they were doing up until that time when they took the Lord's Supper. I mean, how, how do you change the Lord's Supper? I mean, Christ gave it, and the church is supposed to be practicing it. So what were they doing for 800 years previous to that time? And what the Mass is, it, it, it represents perhaps the grossest perversion of Christianity that's ever been seen. Now, uh, maybe it's even hard to say that, because when you look at all the things that Roman Catholicism has been through, it's hard to rank it. It's hard to rank which thing is the worst because there are so many bad things. But Mary, uh, uh, the, the Mass got started at that time, the, the bloody sacrifice of the Mass that destroys the, the sanctity of Christ's blood. Now, they'll tell you that what they do elevates Christ's blood, but it actually devalues his blood into a repeated sacrifice, which the Bible says is not needed. Doesn't the Word of God say that Christ came and he shed his blood once for all? So we don't need to crucify Christ in the Mass every week as if the blood of Christ can't do what God says that it can do. And so I, I really don't understand why Baptists are not more appalled by this. I mean, why in the world would you have some of the big-name Baptists that, that could join with Roman Catholics to do anything? I don't understand that. The second thing that happened during this time period was the worship of Mary, and that's called mary Olatry. Uh, this was a new doctrine that came along very early uh, when there was a council convened in Chalcedon in 451. And it's not surprising that it was something that the idea was invented very early because uh, the Christianity of Rome is really nothing but warmed over paganism. What Mary did was to take the place of the old Babylonian god, Semiramis. Now, I have a picture, if you'd show that to us, Corey. This picture here... Uh, Semiramis, Mary is just another name for Semiramis, and, and Jesus is another name for Nimrod. So you can see it goes, goes a long way back. But this, this picture that we have here represents what was done in the book of Jeremiah, where we read there about the queen of heaven in Jeremiah. And it was the worship of the queen of heaven that brought judgment down upon Israel. Now, what Rome does, the Roman Catholic Church still retains that title for Mary. They still call her the Queen of Heaven, even though the only place that you'll ever find that in the Bible is in the book of Jeremiah, which refers to this Babylonian God that these people worshipped. And as I said, you see there, it goes back a long, long time, goes all the way back to time to just after the flood, when you have uh, this Semiramis and you have Nimrod after the days of the flood. Well, the council at Chalcedon proposed that Mary should be worshipped as a new mediator between man and God. And they said that Mary is the one who actually takes our prayers to God. And then in a, in a kind of a twist of the whole thing, they said that Mary has influence over Christ. 
And so she can actually tell him which prayers that he can grant and which ones he can't grant so that she has, she actually grants permission for Christ to answer our prayers. Now, over the years, Mary Olatry evolved to, the pl- evolved to the place that Mary became more emphasized in that system than Jesus. A few years ago, when Pope John Paul II died, his casket was draped in the flag of Mary. And Pope John Paul II was known as the Pope of Mary. And he made Mary the focus of his ministry rather than Jesus. Well, a good question to ask about Catholicism is, is Catholicism really Trinitarian? Is it Orthodox? And I think that you would have to say no, because they have a Godhead with four parts, with evidently Mary holding sway over at least the other three. And so you don't really have a trinity in the Roman Catholic Church. And then they they added some more doctrine to try to get Mary to her exalted place. And they added the the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And, And that's the doctrine that says that Mary was born without original sin. She was not a sinner when she was born, just as Jesus was not a sinner when he was born. Now, folks, there's only one way that that can happen. And that is Mary would have to have a divine nature for that to happen. This is all a hodgepodge. This is a whole mixed up thing in theology here. But that's not where it stops. They also have the assumption of Mary. And in the assumption of Mary, they say that Mary's body and soul, or both body and soul, were received directly into heaven. Now, because she has a sinless body, then there's no problem with taking that body that she has directly into heaven. So when she died, she didn't go in the grave, but rather she ascended into heaven. Like who? Like Jesus. This is a different God, isn't it? This is a whole different thing here. Well, Roman Catholicism does. They just keep digging this hole deeper. Well, Mariolatry actually was not declared official until 1950. Now, they've been practicing it all along, but actually became official doctrine in 1950. And that just shows you that the modern Roman Catholic Church is not too far removed from all of these things that are going on in the Middle Ages, all those evil practices. So um, they're just waiting for this transformation that's going to take place in the apocalypse. And it's not really a radical transformation because all the things are in place. Now, the third thing that happened during this period of time was the worship of idols. They began to worship idols officially. In 787, the Council of Nice promoted the, the doctrine of image worship. And, of course, that's, again, just a very short step away from the paganism of the old empire. Uh, Roman Catholics claim that they're not idol worshipers. If you talk to them, they'll say, oh, no, we don't worship idols. We worship what the idol represents. But that is no different than idol worship of the old Roman Empire, the idol worship of the Greeks, the idol worship of the Babylonians, because they would say the same thing. I mean, why would they have idols of their gods in all the different cities, the same, the same gods, same idols? They didn't actually believe that that idol was their god. They believed the god lived on Mount Olympus. So what they would say is, no, we worship what this idol represents. And as I said a minute ago, the Muslims could see through that. That was nothing but foolishness, and yet people today can't see through it at all. It didn't seem that they can. But if you want to see if a Roman Catholic worships an idol, 
Take a sledgehammer to one of them and see if they worship their idol. Watch them kiss the feet of idols. Take a picture of Mary and poke the eyes out of it and see whether a Roman Catholic ever worshipped those things. So as I say, Muslims were fooled by it or weren't fooled by it and neither are we. Fourth thing that arose during this time were the monastic orders. The monastic orders or the ecclesiastical orders are those like the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Benedictines, the Jesuits, and so on. And the monastic orders grew up up separate from papal authority, but they became so scandalous, so evil in what they were doing that finally they had to bring all of that system under the Pope himself. So all the monastic orders are now under papal authority, which I'm sure helped them a great deal as far as scandal is concerned. But with that is where I have to tell you about this unified concentrated effort by Rome to deal with those whom they call heretics. And you know what a heretic is to Rome? Anybody that disagrees with Roman Catholicism, especially Baptist people of the time, they were called heretics. Well, the Baptist churches were growing during this time, and we'll talk, as I said, we'll talk more about that next time, but the Baptist churches became a thorn in Rome's side. And so Rome is absolutely opposed to all soul liberty. And so in 1227, Pope Gregory IX gave official orders for the fifth thing to come out of this period, and that is the Inquisition. The Inquisition came out of this period of time. Now, what Rome had always done, Rome had always persecuted dissenters, but what they did in 1227 was to make persecution the official business of the church. And so they took one of those monastic orders that I was talking about just a moment ago, the Dominicans, and they gave the Dominicans free reign by any means necessary to hunt down heretics and force confessions out of them, cause them to either confess or die if they didn't confess that the Roman Catholic Church was true. Now, you can see that this is not really about salvation. It's not about conscience when it comes to whether you believe that the Roman Catholic Church is true or not. This is not conscience that's involved here, but what you have is acquiescence to a system, that the means of salvation is a system of sacraments, and so faith is not really a part. And so when you and I talk about faith, we think, well, what is faith? Well, to be saving faith, uh, saving faith is to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and to trust Him alone and count on Him only to take us to heaven. But when you speak to a Roman Catholic about faith, he's not really speaking about that. He's talking about faith in a system. It's faith in the steps that have to be taken in order to go to heaven. And his faith is that if he completes all the steps correctly, that eventually he will get there. Now, so a Roman Catholic does not speak of faith the way that we speak of faith. And so conscience is not really a part of that system. And this is why they could justify wringing confessions out of people that just simply didn't want to be tortured anymore. Well, the Inquisition covers a long period of time. I could talk to you quite a bit about what happened then, about instruments of torture that were used on our forefathers. Uh, Those of you that have visited Europe, you no doubt, or probably, I guess, you've gone to some of the castles that were there, and you've seen some of the instruments of torture that were used. And I might talk a little bit more about those things as we... Uh, look more into this period of the Middle Ages. But you can't ignore this kind of thing. You can't pretend that this doesn't, didn't happen. I mean, that stuff is right there. You can go see what they did 
Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about these kinds of things. I mean, when you talk about what they did to people, uh, stretching bodies out, pulling arms and legs out of socket, or even pulling the arms and legs completely away from the body, I mean, things like that don't easily pass out of our minds. And then taking people and pulling their tongues out and cutting their tongues off, gouging out their eyes, taking pregnant women and cutting babies out of the womb, slow roasting bodies over open flames. How do you sweep that kind of thing under the rug? It's a matter of history. And the purpose for it all was to keep people like us from preaching the gospel of Christ. Now, it's not any different than what you see in the book of Acts when the apostles were taken and they were beaten and they were stoned. And what did the people of God do when that happened? They counted themselves blessed to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. And that's how the church survived. That's why we have Baptist churches today. Well, the Inquisition was a a formal tribunal that lasted all the way up to the end of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Christians were persecuted all of the time since it has been that way all the time since Christ started the church but here it has the official stamp of approval from a corrupt church that folks today still has not come clean about their past the Roman Catholic Church has never apologized for the millions of people that they killed these wicked adulterous slimy popes what I would call them and they killed Baptist people by the millions. And, and there, there has been, there was a council that started this. There was an official decree in 1227 from Pope Gregory the Ninth, but there has been no official decree. No council has ever said that the, that the mechanism of the Inquisition should be taken down, that it's no longer right to do that. No council of Roman Catholicism has ever done that. Now, they stopped doing it because of changing governments and loss of power and all of those things, but they never took down the authority that they'd given their, their people to, to have an inquisition. I mean, Rome is still a papal state, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, our government recognizes the Vatican officially as the, as the papal state. We have diplomatic ties with the Vatican. And these are people who were official persecutors without a single act of contrition. And so you wonder, how how does the United States break off ties with somebody like North Korea? I mean, you talk about human rights violations, they are guilty of it, but at least they say they did it. Roman Catholic Church claims that they never did it. The popes deny that it ever happened. But let me back up just a little bit as I close here that I don't want anybody to misunderstand me because I'm not saying that if you go to the average Roman Catholic and uh, you talk to them about these kinds of things, that they feel this way, or that they would support doing these kinds of things. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is the same kind of corruption pervades the hierarchy of Catholicism. And if it didn't, then we would have no way to explain the heartless cover-up of the corruption of that church that continues to go on. And the reason that it goes on is because it's in their culture. It's the culture. The whole system is corrupt and satanic. But I'm not supposed to talk about things like that. I mean, I'm, I'm here to give you a history lesson on the church. And uh, how can I help it if the true church has gone on for centuries under this kinds of 
persecution has fought tooth and nail to try to survive all of this at the hands of people who themselves claim to be Christians. So how do murders and pedophiles represent Christ? I mean, how, do, how does a pope try to protect that kind of system and use his own power uh, to play party to scandals? How can that person represent Christ? Something here does not add up, folks. So going back to the Inquisition, the, the mechanism is still there, and we wonder, well, why hasn't Rome dismantled that? Why, why hasn't Rome removed that from their books? Well, we know why, actually. The Bible tells us why. And that's because there's coming a time in the end when the Antichrist will come, and what he will do is he will sanction Roman Catholicism once again. He'll join up, we'll have a church state government, and the Roman Catholic Church will be restored to her glory days along with the Roman Empire that comes under the Antichrist. So that church state government is going to rise again and the Antichrist lends his support to Rome and the Catholic Church is going to head up the coalition of all apostate churches. And what we'll have is a repeat of Constantinian history. And when that happens there will be a new inquisition. Read Revelation, and you can see that whole thing unfold before your eyes. So this period was the darkest of times. Uh, there is no telling how much was lost because of the thirst of power of Roman Catholicism, stopping the, the social and scientific advancement of the time. And, and as I'm closing, I'll just give you one example of this. Did you know that uh, the Roman Catholic Church condemned Galileo in the Inquisition? And they told Galileo that he must recant Copernican theory. You don't know what a Copernican theory is? Everybody know? The, what is that? The, the earth revolves around the sun. And the Roman Catholic Church, the popes of the Catholic Church said that's not true. And what they did was they put Galileo under house arrest. They denied him medical treatment. And Galileo died of his illnesses. But you know what the Roman Catholic Church did? They finally decided that Galileo might actually be right. And you say, well, when did they decide that? 1983. So much for infallible popes, folks. Well, next time we're going to talk about true churches during that period, during the Middle Ages. We're going to take a look at what Baptists were doing and the movements of that time that kept the church alive under such persecution. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had together tonight. Lord, uh, just um, in many ways a very gruesome history that the church has been through but you told us in the very beginning that this is the way that it would be, that people would hate the truth, they would hate you, they would hate us for telling people the truth. And Lord, uh, we just ask you in these days that we would not be compromisers. We're not facing persecution like they faced, and yet we find so many people in our churches that this just really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what our forefathers have been through. It doesn't matter what the truth is. Just mix it up with anybody. We just thank you, Lord, that, that you've given us the truth and we want to stay with the truth and not to give that up for any reason. So help us, Lord, to do that. Bless your church. Bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.